Hello, Heron. Hi, Tom. So, slightly discombobulated today. <laughs> so I have quite a long list of stuff to talk about. I'm, I'm actually when you say you're slightly disc, you know, I'm discombobulated most of my life. I'm a little surprised to hear you say you're. This is something rare for you. Um. I don't know. I, I seem to recall last time we recorded, actually, I had a dry throat for the entire recording. So I might have been more discombobulated then than I am now. It's just oh, all okay. relative. Discombobulated is a very relative thing. Yeah, yeah. It's like I say, it's just sort of standard practice for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, I have a list of eight topics in front of me. Yeah, we have limited time this evening, too. Well, don't potentially we? so, potentially. We, we could kick it up to nine o'clock. I've got all series of work-related stuff going on in parallel, but I've told them that yeah. I'm going to be out of contact until at least 9.30, so let's see how this thing plays yeah. out. Yeah, we may get bored after 10 minutes. I'm assuming that that's a, a definite possibility, actually, <laughs> particularly with some of these topics that I've got in front of me. But anyway, so do you, do you have any topics this evening? Oh, I guess not. Very good. Very good. So we that we could make that a topic sometime. Why is it I never have any topics and you always are loaded with topics? I don't know. I mean, I think <laughs> on certain prior recordings you have had topics that we've utilized and explored. And I mean, the, yeah, I usually make them up though, right when you ask me. <laughs> yeah, I think the only time where we've had really good topics from you is when I've delayed the recording maybe 15 minutes and you've just had to sit there by yourself thinking of topics. <laughs> so maybe I should do that in the future. No, just don't to... do that. No, they're, they're <laughs> just fine the way they are. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So anyway, I, um, I have a wide variety of topics in front of me. I wanted to start talking about the comic book project, which I've been um, discussing with you kind of periodically, but just going through what has occurred since we last talked, because... My experiences with Kickstarter have gone from kind of lukewarm to cold in terms of my own experiences dealing <laughs> yeah. with it. Although I did receive my first Kickstarter package, having funded, I think now 10 different things, I received a small box of caramels, um, as in small toffee-like things, yeah. that came from Florida. I think I put $20 into the woman's toffee company, and I had 24 caramels, including baking caramels, from that. Uh, so that was the first experience. Okay. That's that I had what you. That's what you expected to get, and that's what you got. That's what I received. Yeah. So yes. yes, okay. If that had been my only transaction with Kickstarter, it would you would be ecstatic. Exactly. <laughs> what a great place. <laughs> so my thought going into this week was that I really needed to ramp up the comic book project with the view that. It, all the parts were there. All the parts were there associated with the work. I mean, in terms of the writing work, all the parts were there associated with knowing how I was going to play it out. I just needed to... to uh, you need an artist. Yes. So yeah. I went to... I mean, you've actually got the, the a script written? Oh, yes. I mean, you're, it's already got... You yep. just need somebody to draw it. Yes. Okay. So in this case... Well, let me see how the week played out. So on Saturday... I decided I know enough of what I want that I can put something up on freelance.com. So I put up my uh, little piece, which was for $600, on freelance.com for 20, no, 30 pages worth of artwork, with the view that it would be probably two lots of that would get me enough for a standard-sized comic book, which was what I was aiming for. And I put it up, and within... Um, so you, pu you post it on freelance.com, 
and then they have to approve it. So I actually posted it, I think, after our conversation on Friday night. And Saturday morning, they had approved it. And I was getting, within 48 hours, I had 76 artists apply. <laughs> so you so obviously, you're, pro- you're paying way too much. <laughs> well, this is what I thought. As one might imagine, this story has a number of twists and turns. <laughs> It wouldn't be an experience if it didn't. So, the first two that contacted me, it was actually a very interesting experience. And, and contact, uh, email we're talking about? So, this is this is the interesting thing. So, Kickstarter has a, uh, sorry, uh, Freelanced has a passive um, application method. So, what they do is they just click apply, and then basically it shows that they've applied for <laughs> the artist position. And yeah. then I'm supposed to go through, in some cases, 300 pages worth of their art and decide based on that. So I wasn't doing that. I mean, this is... this is Well, you did. I mean, but you would want to look at their art. Yeah, I'm, but I don't I, want to go through some... Well, you don't have to look at everything. You so just have to look at a little bit. So here's what I did, yeah. is that I put a requirement that the person get in contact with me and submit their art through getting in contact with me, specific to what I was asking for. I didn't want to go through yeah. end-to-end. I wanted, you know, yeah. your best two works in this genre that you can supply to me. Right. And from that, it whittled down 70-plus applicants to about 10 <laughs> okay now we're getting somewhere no no this yeah. is the only thing they had to do was get in contact with me and i yeah. put it in the writing because being able to read and follow basic written instructions is relatively critical for this project well there's an attitude involved in it too but you're right yeah it is helpful if they're literate <laughs> not just literate i mean because i think a number of the folks that click the applied button probably could have but i think they're just in some kind of trance where they see 15 of these jobs and they just click apply 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 they don't yeah. actually read what's going on yeah so it seems so the, out of the 10, I received, actually, I pretty well received, everyone who contacted me, who I emailed to get the details to, also then sent me their artwork. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, you make them jump over a certain loop. Exactly. And, uh, and it, it weeds out all the people who aren't serious. <laughs> it, it does more than that. It gives me yeah. a clear indication of, can they overcome a basic yeah. construction? So about, I don't know, maybe about 60 in, I realized that this the fact that I'd only received, I think, six or seven by that point, realised that I probably should state at the very start of the job application, the job description, that there was a secret thing that they need to read through and actually get to in order to get in contact with me. <laughs> hit, hit, nudge, nudge. So oh, I put good. it like, up front, and that did up the odds. I mean, but, but still, there were still at least 15 people who didn't read that and just kind of hit the apply and went on. So I then had... So my thought was... Well, that's perfect. I mean, because you, you yeah. know if... You, and do you have their names? Yes. And look, let, so just in case you ever see them again, you can be sure to avoid them. <laughs> so this, this thing has evolved quite distinctly in the past few days. So after two days, within the first um, two or three hours of it being live, uh, two people had emailed me artwork. And these were the two that I ultimately stuck with. They're the two that I'm employing for this project. We'll talk a yeah. little bit more about that in time. But the thing that struck me was um, the quality of artwork, even in this space. I mean, I don't know if I'd offered more money if I would have gotten better quality artists, but 
$20 a page basically defines the kind of artists that are going to be contacting you. And the interesting distinction was that the US artists that contacted me really weren't that good at drawing. I mean, they really, they obviously, there's obviously some bar basically associated with being on freelance and perhaps associated with money. And the folks that contacted me through the 10, of the folks from the US, in general, their style just didn't look like it was commercially viable, basically. Mm-hmm. The two folks that contacted me initially were an Indonesian and an Argentinian fellow. And for the project, there are two very distinct areas that the the artist needs to be able to draw. The artist needs to be able to draw bleak cityscapes with characters involved in the bleak cityscapes and also jungle. These are the two elements, like subtropical rainforest, but yeah. basically jungle. And of the two that contacted me initially, the Argentinian was very good at drawing bleak cityscapes, and the Indonesian was extremely good at drawing lavish jungle scenes. Perfect. So those two (laughs) immediately slot down. So after two days, I realized it's really just cruel for me to continue this job ad with the view that I was getting increasingly desperate artists who clearly were lacking some skills in drawing, but wanted to make up for that in constant contact with me. Um, and I realized I just had to close the whole thing down. That the experiment had run its Yeah, well, and you, well you, and you got your artist. I got my two artists. <laughs> right. So yeah. I was comfortable at that point. And I was actually relatively confident, even though the two artists are distinctly different, that I could basically get what I want. This is where the interesting stuff begins. So yeah. uh, because... As a hobby, I've been, for more than 10 years now, the chair of the International Game Developers Association Intellectual Property Rights Special Interest Group. I was able to draw up a concise, single-page, work-for-hire document that that covered $600 or 30 pages worth of work. But what I realized looking at their styles, and particularly exploring through them, was that both of them had flawed elements in their styles. And this was the interesting part, that I had to work through whatever they had to work through in order to get the end product as I wanted to see it. So the Argentinian contacted me and said that he had some concerns associated with the potential breadth of this work. And I said, look, that's fine. What I'll do is I'll get 10 pages from you for $200, $20 a page, just to work through the character development and also perhaps the first chapter of the work just so you get into a kind of comfort zone. And also because there are two characters that overlap from each side, so basically the Argentinian and the Indonesian guy need to be able to draw two characters relatively similarly so yeah. they can be coherently transposed. Yeah, you got to see them. Exactly. Yeah, right. yeah. So anyway, uh, the initially the Indonesian guy was very, very positive. He sent me three emails saying he was very excited about being part of this thing and what have you. Then I got him the contract. He got me the contract back relatively quickly, signed, all good. Yeah. And I sent him... Um, so what I have is I have two PDFs. One PDF is a series of photos of Elands to get the tropical rainforest. And uh, maybe half a dozen photos for character reference of the various characters in the, in the novel. So um, he then completely dropped all communication. So that's been the past three days I haven't heard back from him. In the interim, the Argentinian has contacted me back twice. He, there were basic requirements, draw the two characters, um, here are the photographs, you know, draw as close as you can in terms of likeness. So the Argentinian got me back a single character, 
wearing basically the same clothes that were in the, his comic book sample, not anything like what were on the characters in the photos. No <laughs> hair difference, exactly the same face, just like he was from his comic book sample. So this happened last night, I yeah, guess. Well, and yeah. I sent him a very polite email saying, let's focus on the hair and the clothing and let's do facial like close-ups to work on those elements and um, you know, and draw the two characters. And yeah. because this is being done on a single page, he basically drew another character, which is closer to one of the characters, but still has his strange kind of, I don't know, um, kind of metrosexual well, body-fitting yeah. clothing, yeah. Yeah. which seems to be applicable. And I think the what this is turning into, this $200 period, is basically a potential to nix either of the artists and potentially right. to restart yeah. the whole process. Yeah. Because I think what has happened Well, you just need here, to get another city guy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what, what has happened here is that you realise, oh, this is the other thing that I got on Freelance, which was very interesting, and I kind of expected to get, although they were very, very polite, was American artists saying, you are undercutting our profession. And I got three of these emails. Undercutting it by doing by offering only that much money. By offering only that much money, and one of them contacted uh, me and said I charge typically four hundred a page. Another one contacted me and said I charge three fifty a page, and the other uh, one contacted me and said he didn't say how much. But looking at their work, I wasn't going to pay that kind of premium for what they weren't offering. I mean, they didn't offer. Anything. They weren't that much better. <laughs> One of them did amazing anthropomorphic animals, which, if you're familiar with Field of Chaos, has absolutely nothing to do with Field of Chaos. And he gave me yeah. a series of anthropomorphic animal sets. The folks that contacted me that asked about the project, I gave the Wikipedia link to Field of Chaos, which gives them enough information, and just said it's going to be based on this. Uh, none of the two, the two that I selected, however, didn't ask anything up front. And I think. Probably what I'm learning here is the iterations that I need to go through to select reasonable artists. And maybe maybe $20 a page is the wrong amount. Yeah, it may be. Well, that's, yeah, it's, it's finding people you can work with. Oh, I mean, it, it's really not, you know, it, it's not that they're better or worse or any, you know, they're, they're just the way most humans are. And I can't work with most humans. So the thing that strikes me is it's also enabling me to identify what I probably need to do for this project as well. So initially I was quite comfortable giving them kind of tailor-made chapters that were very neatly described. A lot of the dialogue was cut down. But what I've realised is probably I need to go back to the Gaines paradigm, which is that you give them actual squares with the dialogue and the yeah, text Yeah, in right. Yeah, you you decide what, how many images, what images, where they go, and or, or you hire a designer to do that. Well, I think, I mean, true. I think probably that is an element that could be done. But initially, I'm going to try my hand at that part, just yeah. to see if it gives them kind of slightly more focus. And I put them out to both. I put that out to both of them this morning. I would. I think that makes it easier for them. It would. It, it, it yeah. means they can focus on the drawing. Yeah, they can just do. The, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's perfect. So that's basically been my experience with. You feel thing. okay about uh, designing the layout and, yeah. and essentially doing all that part? Yeah, I've. I mean, yeah. I've done various things like that previously, oh, okay. and certainly I'm. I'm relatively mindful of how it should be, and I think also some of the tricks are when you see sections which are not necessarily dialogue heavy, but could have 
interesting like character poses or these yeah. kind of things. You can put those in too. Yeah, so, yeah. You don't have. Yeah, don't, yeah. You can do anything you want. Exactly. So <laughs> I mean, I think it needs to have that level of direction, which I'm actually quite comfortable with. And that's, that's important that it contain that. I mean, that sets up a kind of rhythm for the for the mm. whole thing. So that's certainly what I've proposed to them. And looking through, I haven't even got the Indonesian's character samples back yet, so I don't know what stage he is at. And I think what I might do is um, potentially up both their amounts if they do pass through, if they do improve, yeah. with the view that I would get colour then. Because I started to realise, actually, the well, both of them have relatively good pen and ink, but what I'm actually looking for from both of them, and one sense is the kind of muted cityscape colours, and the other sense is this kind of rich greenery. And yeah. the absence yeah. of that, I think, will have an effect. So I'm going to kind of discuss with them in the, in the oh, so they term. think it's just black and white. They were they were hired for black and white, even yeah. though both of them have good color elements to them. So I think what I might do is I might say, hey, what I'm going to do here is actually give you uh, lay, laid out boxes with text, and you could just you know augment around that. And yeah. let's talk about color rates for you both. Yeah. If and and actually that. tell them also that if they have their own ideas, you're certainly willing to discuss them. Well, that's what I've done. I think yeah. the what I tried to indicate in the ad, which is very true, is that there is probably at least, probably at least between a thousand to potentially well more than a thousand pages worth of work here for them. I mean, I have, in addition to Field of Chaos, which is published, I have probably twice that again in unpublished stuff, which would ideally move to a comic book very quickly, plus a whole lot of, like, additional, like, short stories and what have you that could easily be manipulated into this form too. So, I mean, my real interest here is creating a procedure, an organ, basically, yeah. that I can get this work out and in knock a form them out. that will be consumed through <laughs> yeah. Kickstarters and things like this. Yeah. So, in parallel to this, I also bumped into a fellow... Netflix has got an open-source prize now. This is public information. So we've had kind of constant influx of open source people coming to Netflix. And one of these people was someone I used to work for who I have a lot of time for. So he and I went for a wander. He's also been basically pressing me to form a startup, which he can be a part of over the past, I guess, six months. Um, and my feedback to him through that, well, as of through the week, was that my plan was to write a book, as I've described originally with O'Reilly, potentially now self-published through Kickstarter, what have you, to basically laid out the ground rules for machine learning as I saw it. But I made the point to him, this whole project, now I've got five chapters worth of this project, I've put on hold in order to get this comic book thing going to actually start <laughs> testing out Kickstarters because I think really I've got to have these kind of optimizing steps before I whack down, you know, the artificial yeah. intelligence magnum opus, basically. So I, he was very receptive to that, and we talked a lot about the kind of zips and flows, I mean, very similar to what we chat about. But yeah, it's going to be an interesting process. My only concern is that it's time-consuming, and it takes up a strange period of time which I normally would spend sleeping. Because basically the artwork typically comes in at about 4am, or the correspondence of these kind of things, I want to get an iteration back to them, which has been, although this whole daylight saving thing has been messing with my sleep anyway, it's been like an additional thing, so I'm going to have yeah. to kind of manage how we correspond in some yeah, way. Yeah, a goal, yeah, you're going to learn a lot about organizing on a global scale oh, with individual people. I mean, that really 
strikes me as at the heart of a new civilization is where you and I, no matter where you and I are, can collaborate and get things done. Yes. Amen. So, yeah, this is this is week one of the process. Um, it's been relatively positive. My wife is certainly happy that it's we're not 1,200 and a whole currently associated with this, but I have given her the... I think she's spent a lot more time on Kickstarter, which has actually motivated her interest in this project too. And, I mean, she yeah. has ultimate faith in my ability to, you know, manage these kind of situations. So, yes, I think this is going to be a very interesting project. Well, I'm watching. <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I'm, there's a lot for me to learn in this. Mm. I, I have no idea exactly how at this point, but I can see that it's a way of garnering resources so the interesting thing associated with this is that i've actually pointed people who've contacted me about for example facebook ads to our prior conversations associated with this and my hope is by giving a verbal documentation of the kind of ebbs and flows of this process that i'm actually also providing a blueprint to our listeners and you uh, associated with how to get these kind of things done and certainly the kind of mistakes that i can make through this yeah. i'd like to hope others didn't make in the future. No, they're going to make different, bigger, more disastrous ones, if, if you know, because we will have solved all the little easy ones now. Oh, man. <laughs> so I've just realized, actually, that there's a familiar theme of sleep deprivation through a number of my topics this evening, and I'm not sure whether that's a, a theme for this evening or whether it's just a coincidence. But um, moving through them... So, a topic that I wanted to raise completely haphazardly, and feel free to um, jump in here, but it was with regards to opiates. And certainly my sense with regards to opiates, and I guess we've talked kind of casually about, you know, your substance consumption, and we've never really talked about the things that I have consumed historically. I mean, I'm teetotal and relatively boring in terms of my day-to-day -day life. Um, but I have had... I don't know, I have had occasion to take opiates occasionally, and I don't really feel that they're something that I particularly like. But the times that I've used opiates more recently have always been associated with either, well, it's all to do with sleep, actually. And I think we've never really talked, aside from the fact that I'm an extremely light sleeper, about my general sleeping patterns. But certainly, sleep is not something that comes to me particularly easily. When I was through, you know, in my... I don't know, late teens to early 20s, my ability not to sleep and to work was a very productive thing. And I think, truth be told, if I didn't have regimented work hours, I would probably be quite functional. But certainly when I get sick and things like this, my ability to sleep is not particularly easy. And I don't know, I don't know how one can even really explore these topics. But I mean, certainly when I lived in the UK... Uh, I uh, fell and injured myself, and the only medicine that they could give me was codeine, which I found last night is an opiate. And I really didn't like codeine at all. I mean, I had to take it to ease the pain. But I had strange kind of come-down effects from it, which basically just left me shaky. And I had to... I consumed quite a substantial <laughs> quantity of codeine for about yeah. a week. And then I went into work thinking I could go cold turkey on it and found quite quickly I couldn't. And what happened? I mean, I just—I was shaking uncontrollably. It was really quite bizarre. And for how long did that go on? I had to go home. I couldn't work. I mean, well, I was it for but I mean, for days so or just I, one. Then I realized that probably what I needed to do was actually wean myself off it. So I reduced the codeine quite dramatically um, over a period of about three days, and then uh -huh. went cold turkey. Uh -huh. Now, 
And that worked? Yeah, that worked. The other thing is, I always thought of Valium as being an opiate, but Valium actually isn't an opiate. Probably of these class of substances, my best experience, but I've only ever taken small quantities of it, is Valium. And I was prescribed that for my, by my grandfather when... Um, so my mother, when she became a diplomat, moved to Malaysia, which required a substantial amount of flying for me. And when I was about 17, I decided to reconcile with my father's father, my grandfather, who was... Um, living in Brisbane and was relatively isolated and I decided to go up and spend some time with him but it required me to fly back and the plane was struck by lightning on the way back and dropped like a thousand feet I mean people stopped screaming basically Um, and from that experience I really didn't particularly want to fly but as I had to fly in order to visit my mother my grandfather prescribed me Valium I think he gave me two Valiums Uh. I took them prior to the flight going up and fly to the flight coming back in fact, I took the second one slightly too early, like just as I was going through customs, yeah. and that kind of worried me because I thought, really, I should have taken that at the point of takeoff, at least. Yeah. But I found Valium, in terms of these substances, Valium's not an opiate, probably the easiest, but I took a small quantity of it. Yeah. So my wife was hit by a car just before we started dating. She was T-boned, and it did her some spinal injuries. And through that period, basically, she'd go through a series of different prescriptions, And when we lived in Las Vegas, one of the prescriptions was for an extreme muscle relaxant and also uh, oxycotton. And I also have a history of kinking my back, although I hadn't um, in the foreseeable past. And um, when I did kink my back one time, Michelle said to me, take this and then take this. And I didn't realize what I was taking. She just gave me two pills of of different types. And... um, my recollection of it was that I felt very happy taking the Oxycontin, but it didn't really, it made things slightly fuzzy, but it wasn't like codeine in terms of the effect. And it really didn't occur to me until reading about it well after the fact that it was in fact an opiate. Um, The thing that struck me, then we moved to Vegas um, and I got terribly sick before I started. I must've taken it once before then because I have really quite chronic trouble sleeping and I go through various phases associated with various medications to try and fix it and I once accidentally took an oxycotton instead of whatever I was taking at the time for it and it gave me a very distinctly different sleeping experience but it was a considerably deeper sleep and I woke up rested so moving forward uh, there was then a period where basically the company I was working for closed down while I was in Australia I came back and through the process of actually being recruited by the company that then hired me, I'd gotten terribly sick. I don't know how I, what I'd picked up, but I'd picked up some kind of influenza with kind of bronchitis following it. And a week before I had to start, I was having real trouble sleeping one night, and I again took an oxycotton. And then it re- made me realise two days following that, I then had a drug test for the company. So I thought to myself, this is absolute idiot, because you've just <laughs> taken an opiate, and then you're going to do this hair sample test, which tests, amongst other things, for oxycotton. And you've taken this thing stupidly. I mean, in some regard, (laughs) intentionally, but when you were just in a sleep-deprived state. And obviously, it wasn't flagged through it. But through this period of time as well, my wife really didn't like... I mean, we've talked a little bit about my wife's background as kind of, you know, deadhead, what have you. But I really... You know, my wife really didn't like the effects of oxycotton, and she had the prescription for it. So yeah. she basically threw it away after that. But the thing that strikes me about it, particularly the kind of things you hear about teenagers using it, 
is that they use a substantial quantity of it. Like, they firstly, they grind it up, which means they don't really know how much they're taking at any given time, but they take a substantial quantity of it. And really, I didn't find it particularly pleasant. As you buy it in Oxycontin as well, as I was reading last night, you get additional stuff. The, the, you only get a very small amount of the opiate, and most of it is actually designed to get the opiate to act really quickly. There's an additional substance, which I can't remember off the top of my head, but that basically gets it to work as fast as possible. And I think it's those combination of factors that make it, you know, what it is. The thing that struck me about it, which to a lesser extent I had with my conine experiences, was that I just got very depressed following it. <laughs> so Whoopee. you'd sleep through the night, yeah. you'd wake up in the morning, you'd feel well rested, but you just had this lingering sadness. <laughs> <laughs> and, really? Yeah. Well, that'll be interesting to see. Yes. <laughs> so you've walked into this one, Heron. Do you want to? Do you want to talk yeah. any more about this topic? Well, yeah. You know what I'm really interested in is uh, DMT. Yes. And um, and I haven't got a clue how to get a hold of some. I so, imagine if I looked, it probably wouldn't be that difficult to come by. But um, all the people I know who could get me DMT don't like me. And I think it's funny, actually, because I, I associate with a good group of hippies, and I'm a wide variety of these folks listen to this podcast, too. We could both potentially find DMT through this podcast. But the thing that strikes me is the people I know who are true psychonauts in this part of the world always look at me with a slight level of distrust. I'm a little bit too clean for their liking, basically, Heron. Yeah. And that, I think... So, for example, Bruce Damer has a couple of friends who came to Netflix, came for lunch one day, and we sat and talked, and at the end, you know, and they were... They follow... Um, there's a woman whose name escapes me, and if I was a little bit more on the ball, I would think of her name. She was... Um, she's basically like a psychedelic darling. She's about my age... Um, she's a kind of nerd who's done like things like you know consuming. Her, her claim to fame on YouTube is, I think, ingesting LSD rectally, and she talks about her rectal <laughs> LSD ingestion experiences, which yeah, eventually was pulled yeah. off YouTube. But you know, she's kind of this little nerd girl kind of person who talks about her drug experiences. You read into her, and she was actually. She actually worked with the feds to knock out one of the largest LSD producers in the Midwest. I mean, she has a very checkered, very interesting history. And if, if, if there was any coherence in the, psycho, the psychedelic community, they would have weeded her out pretty quickly. Because my view is that if you work with the Federales even slightly, you're not really part of the ongoing narrative associated with this thing. But anyway, so... Bruce Tanner's friend and his wife, who were both relatively nice, were very positive about this, this woman. And since then, and I've contacted him periodically, they have two houses, one in the mountains and one on the coast, because they have all these... I mean, basically, I think there's a thin line between kind of orgies and all this other kind of stuff that they're doing. Um, and he has a local radio show in Santa Cruz. In fact, he's the person who's the origin of all the important things that are going on in the world are occurring right here, right now. That's his kind of catchphrase yeah. on his radio show. So I'm pretty sure that he and his extended posse could quite easily get their hands on DMT. Oh, oh yeah, I, I know it. Like I say, it, it's <laughs> when I... But it, it's it's just be, it's occurred to me again. I mean, I think about this every once in a while, and, and it is my intention to get some and um, have that experience. Certainly. But uh, there's no hurry, and um, but you know, just saying it here, you know, puts it into the world. So <laughs> yes, 
There yes. you go. For whatever the hell that's worth. Yeah, it's probably, <laughs> I mean, in large part because the, I mean, I've heard vast quantities of information associated with all the psychedelics and read extensively. And we've talked a little bit about LSD previously in terms of my broader concerns that it will just be like a McDonald's meal of psychedelics. But the stuff that I hear about DMT <laughs> is universally interesting to me. And I think yeah. in particular, because I've already been in some of those spaces kind of mathematically and through, you know, meditation and dreaming and all these kind of things, the ability to kind of access that in a controlled fashion, I think, is also appealing to me. Oh, it's uh, well. I've I've read enough to be interested. Yes. <laughs> I mean, as I look around, I have five books just in my wall associated with um, with DMT related stuff. Yeah. Um, so it's heavily in my reading. You're, you're thinking about that too, then. I don't think you see. The thing is that my wife is is like an ex smoker is so completely anti now that it would be it is it'd be an interesting space basically but i think i would need to because i mean she has basically done everything aside from heroin mind you yeah um so she has a wide variety of of chemical experiences that i have not had access to but at the same and she point she disapproves of you exploring that space i think she sees it it's a bit um I think she sees. I think she realizes that there is something about me that is ultimately childlike, and she sees. And I've had this account given to me by other friends that have used, you know, psychedelics heavily, even people that have taken heroin. Um, that there's some element of my character that they think would be hardened through this experience. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but, um, well, you'll certainly. I mean, if it, if everything goes the way it does for most people, you will not be the same person on the other end of the experience. Mm. I think you know, my wife likes the nature of that uh, <laughs> person. Yeah. Uh, you know, we'll see. Mm. <laughs> so yes. it really helps to have some sort of grounding and, and also I mean, the ability to let go. That's all that ego death stuff that they, they talk about, mm. you know, is to, is to really abandon your story. It's easy once the story's gone. That's why the, the work I'm doing, I think, is is right in line with this because I, I think that's a large part of what what drugs do to people. It yanks them out of their stories. It presents them with stuff that just simply does not fit any of the stories they've got. Mm. I think I'm certainly not interested in ayahuasca, and I want to say this quite publicly. The well, ayahuasca DMT. No, it's not. Actually. Well, it's close enough. Well, actually, what it is is it's a series of. It is DMT yeah, I know, in some regards. I know what it is, but yeah. you know, in, in the process of the uh, inhibitors and all that stuff. I'm just saying, yeah. Why? That's why I want DMT. Why would the fuck would you go through that yeah. <laughs> that ayahuasca experience when you can just take DMT? Yes. It's not the same. It's better. <laughs> well, as neither of us have taken DMT, or we can, we need to caveat this very strongly by saying yeah. neither of us have had this experience. Yeah. No, but I mean, it seems pretty obvious to me. Throw up, get sick for an hour, and then have this wonderful experience, or smoke some DMT, and 30 seconds later, you're in another universe. Exactly. And then 15 minutes later, you're back it's where back you started to, with. Well, no, you're not back where you started. Well, true. Actually. But you are, you are, you've returned. Yeah, you're, you're back to something, but it ain't the same person anymore. Yes. Yes. Anyway, so my view is, and um, 
Yeah, I think all the other stuff that is talked about, um, psilocybin, all these other kinds of things, to me, yeah, it just doesn't seem to account for the same immediacy. It's funny, actually, we are going, we are describing the immediacy of an experience that ultimately through kind of shamanic traditions or what have you would have taken, you know, weeks, months, years to achieve. But anyway, we're on the yeah. same page there. Yeah. The yeah. main thing, and I'll return to this, is that I don't see, unless I dramatically change my social groups and am accepted by these people, which it actually fits into uh, another That's why right. I forgot. You're actually, so you're actually a human no, look, who ha- it, has it, relationships with people th- that are no, ongoing and stuff, it's right? It's not like that. What I'm saying is that the people who have access to these kind of things also have their own social introduction rituals, of which I break a number of entry criteria. Oh, yeah, I don't want to play in their game. I just want to get some DMT. <laughs> well, unfortunately, <laughs> the two things are inextricably connected. Well, maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know that. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm a pretty clever guy, and I usually get what I want. It may take a while, and it, but, and, and, but when it does come, it usually shows up real... You know, with no problems. It just sort of appears. So some of the best Facebook posts I've seen from you have occurred in the past week with a series of photos of Heron through the ages. Oh, God, that. Yeah. Yeah, I've decided to come out. Uh, Yeah, as a (laughs) full-blown monkey. Yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. (laughs) See, for years, I just kept that out of the equation, but now it's time to to play that game. I I don't know if this is a good audio effect. Does that make any sound? <laughs> um, it's it's I, monkey beating chest. Oh, anyway. that. Oh, okay. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, I wasn't sure whether that would work. It's sort of like I should post some pictures, more pictures of my dogs because it's sort of the same. No, I think this is distinctly different <laughs> because basically, you and I have had a kind of you know ongoing discussion for well, nearly three years now, and um, the thing that strikes me is to sit, to have those discussions, particularly as we've done, which is my own affliction, in terms of Heron at 9, 12, 20, 30, 40, you know, and then to see the photograph of you at that exact age is really because the insight, particularly through the Est period and the post-Est period, and, you know, when you were taking the... When you had the photograph taken of you where you were doing your fingers, so you were framing the photograph of you and all this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I remember that night so well. A good friend of mine was also a photographer, and she was just over, and we were talking and sitting on the floor and stoned, of course, mm-hmm. and she was taking pictures of me, and I and we were just playing games, you know, and uh, and that was one of the pictures she took. So when you went from <laughs> having long hair to kind of short, relatively cropped hair, your whole and this is something I I currently have very short hair as well this is something i'm very mindful of that when you have short hair it changes your physical you know impression to others oh yeah i was devastated i didn't like that at all i mean like old ladies were afraid of me at some at a couple points with short hair or with long hair no with short hair now because they they was associated with punks and nazis and you know um yeah i mean that didn't happen very often but i mean i definitely saw that uh, once in a while, when I when I first shaved my head, 
I scared small children. I mean, that's the effect that I had even as a teenager <laughs> on a bus. I'd be wearing a hat and this kid would be staring at me. I'd just pull the hat off gradually and the kid would react in shock. You know? <laughs> I mean, I, I've done that to quite great effect in those kind of circumstances. So I know exactly what you're talking about here. <laughs> Yeah. Other than that, it's great though because I just it's just removed that yeah. whole thing as something to have to think about. It's interesting, actually. I mean, you can see. I mean, the description that you've given associated with the photograph where you're moving your hands and all these kind of things. I knew exactly the context of that photograph, even as you describe it. Really? I already knew the context of that because huh? you were flirting in the photograph. Clearly. I mean, whatever, whatever we were, we were friends. We're good friends. Friend. Actually, we never screwed. That, that, I know, but you were still flirting. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, in yeah, the yeah, I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, no, it was wonderful actually to see Aaron through <laughs> I'll the have ages. To look at that picture again. <laughs> <laughs> but also, you know, this is better than I thought it was. <laughs> <laughs> the photo of you in the the kind of cowboy suit when you were like, yeah. ten. I mean, there's just yeah. there are a whole series of really. You know, identifying photographs that immediately, I mean, because of the conversations that we've had, I immediately saw Heron through the ages, and it was really wonderful. I mean, those, those sets of posts uh, are, um, yeah, were, were an affirmation, I guess, to the conversation that we had last week in summer. Well, it's, it's, um, it's part of, yeah, I'm going through some changes, obviously, mm. <laughs> you know. And I, like I say, I've just kept myself completely, I've always, I mean, really avoided anything personally about me or pictures of me or anything. Mm -hmm. I just didn't want, I didn't want to drag that into it, you know? And, um, so somehow I've uh, come to another conclusion. (laughs) So I posted through the week and I even thought about putting it in the stone ape feed, the audio of William S Gaines or William Gaines, the third, the mad publisher. Did you listen to that audio? Yeah, I did. And what were your thoughts on the audio? Well, I used to read Mad Magazine, so you know yeah. how the hell could I? How could I not be fascinated? <laughs> you know. But in terms of, I mean, the thing that I got from it was the, aside from all the stuff with the, you know, the, the Senate subcommittee investigation, yeah. all this kind of nonsense, was the very matter of fact way that he actually laid out the business. Yeah. To those kids. Yeah. <laughs> and I found it really, I mean, it's something that I returned to. I hadn't listened to it for a couple of years, but through the week I listened to it again, I mean, particularly getting into this comic book thing, just to reaffirm. And that reminded me, hold it, wait, maybe I need to do a little bit more for these artists just to make their them expand into their yeah. creative space and these kind yeah. of things, which you wouldn't normally get through. Just, yeah, you want, you know, actually, you want to make co-collaborators. Exactly. Exactly. That's quite difficult to do with people who you've had just an immediate... I mean, you know, the, the no, that's almost impossible. Yeah. That's what I'm saying is that's what's held me, not held me back. Is I, It's just finding people I actually want to work with, I haven't ever found them. Mm. You know, I mean, I've, 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 actually, I have found a couple that I sort of wanted, but I knew it wasn't going to work. And even though I got what I wanted out of the deal, uh, it, it wasn't, <clears throat> you know, it. I just can't find the kind of people that I want to do business with. It's I'm very- picky. It's a very hard thing. I think I reflect on this quite a bit because certainly in terms of immediate friendship groups and these kind of things, I'm just constantly disappointed. And I think that's just something you have to deal with if you have particular expectations. Well, see, what I don't see, I just don't have that. I I don't interact with people unless 
I, I mean, I, at work I do, but I mean, that's, that's outside of work, I don't interact with anybody but people I like interacting with. Mm. You know, people that actually make a contribution to my life. I mean, a lot of times I'm alone, but when I am with uh, people, uh, it's always an uplifting experience. Well, <laughs> often anyway. Often, yes. <laughs> so I have started contacting linguists, not necessarily on your behalf, but at, at least to introduce them to your work. Well, and I appreciate I, it. I, I saw started, what you did. Yeah. I started with an Australian linguist who actually works out of the university that my father used to be affiliated with, but I knew her through high school. And the other linguist who I want to contact, who I think is, she's at Cornell, I think. I'm going to have to find a way of working out the introduction. She would actually be relatively easy and quite friendly to interact with. She's just very busy currently, and she's recently gone back to work after a year of maternity leave. So I thought um, contacting Janice... And Janice was actually part of a very interesting period of time in my life as well, um, because we were neighbours for uh, probably about two or three years. She lived opposite the shed, the fabled shed in in Canberra. Um, But she had been through a relatively traumatic experience where, actually, this is the connection between the two of these people. Um, We all went to university together. The woman who I'm yet to introduce you to I had known from early childhood, and I know her husband from early childhood as well. But she never had any contact with her husband. She had continuous contact with me, and she would. She lived in a different city, but when she would come back, she'd always come and spend time with me. And this was through our teens, really, leading up to when we both went to the same university together. Now, all my friends would kind of, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink, you know, she'll be your girl, Tom, kind of thing. But I never really had any interest in her. She was more like a sister to me in that regard. So it was all kind of strange. And it came to a head one evening (laughs) when somehow she ended up naked in front of me. And um, it was... Wait wait a minute. Somehow (laughs) she ended up naked in front of me. Somehow. 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 So when we started university, she lived very close to where my family used to live. And I had existing friends in the area. So I would go back and um, be in that area and, you know, go and meet up with her and her roommate um, just as part of large social groups that we were already seeing. And on one occasion, it had gotten too late and I couldn't catch a bus back, so I just stayed over. That was perfectly insipid and left the next morning to go into university, what have you. Okay, uh, and those are, I can see how she could then end up naked and so this, yeah, and then coming out of the, the shower second time, or something. Yeah. No, no, the second time it happened, it was considerably more intentional. In fact, I seem to recall we were sitting on our couch together and then somehow, <laughs> dot, dot, dot. But the thing that struck me about that experience was just that I had been so heavily programmed, not only through, I mean, it was just completely the wrong situation. And... My, you know, ability to deal with the situation was just to quietly excuse myself. Well, actually, that wasn't actually... I mean, I stayed overnight, but I, nothing happened. Yeah. And she was... She thought that we would be dating from that point, and I really wasn't interested in dating, but also no, I was... just wanted a friend. I Well, I, I didn't even really need that at that time either, and... um 
so I was working through university as well. So I actually wasn't in my dorm room and she came by my dorm a couple of times and thought that I was ignoring her even when I was at work. But my friend who I'd known as well <laughs> was perfectly compatible with her, which is kind of what irritated me about this thing was that these were two people that would probably do quite well together. Whereas I really didn't think that I could have a relationship with her. So, um, but her roommate skits out through this period because her boyfriend was in England and she decided to tell all my friends that I had been stalking her, which seemed, and this was the roommate. This wasn't even the one that I was friends with. Which was very bizarre to me, but there was a large group of my friends that actually bought into this, uh, which was very easy. You got way too many friends. That was ex- I believe quite <laughs> real that one needs to cull one's friends at some time. But my friend Janice, who I've introduced, who I've introduced your work to, was one of these people who very seriously thought, um, as you know, she knew the the girl as well, and even though she'd gone to school with me, you know, I, you know, I don't. I have a cleft palate, whatever justification she used for me to be some psycho stalker. Funnily enough, one of my really close school friends came back because he was doing medicine down in Melbourne, which is about 10 hours south, and said to a large group of these people who hadn't invited me to a party that he was at, that this was the most disgusting thing he'd ever heard and there was no way that I could be stalking this girl and it was just all nuts. That it wasn't in my DNA and there was just no way that that was happening. Which, from my point, when I heard this, and Janice came back to me cap in hand and apologised for what she'd said and said that, you know, in reflection, this other party was a nut who was doing various other things, and she was sorry that for her participation in this, and I was fine with that. So, Janice and I have been, you know, Facebook friends ever since. Um, and, you know, she's someone who, uh, who I wouldn't mind putting you in contact with because she has contacted me periodically over the years, and... Really, I'm not going to hold some, you know, nonsense yeah. rumor that was spread by a nut against her. Um, but no, it was very good at actually culling her friends, which I think at the time was very useful because anyone who believed anything, any of that nonsense, you know. You know, I can count all the friends that, that really make a difference in my life on one hand. Mm-hmm. I mean, the rest are not, the, the rest are acquaintances as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. There are lots, I know lots of people. I've spent a lot of time with people. I've had mm. some very interesting and useful <laughs> and whatever things. But uh, friends are something quite rare to me. Mm. I think certainly what I've seen through my parents, maybe my mother less than my father, my mother would have friends that were more important than I was to her. And it was actually a constant theme through my mid to late teens, which repercolated when I went back to Australia, that she really had these friends who were just ethereal entities that could be quite verbally, emotionally, and occasionally even physically abusive to me, and she would stick up for them. I mean, it was quite a strange thing. I think it's ultimately been... Just a kind of, I don't know, a teenage element of my mother that's kind of persisted through to this day that she's had these friends that have just been no good, but she's maintained them for whatever reason. I mean, after when my parents were married, it was slightly different. But after my parents got divorced, she um, became a diplomat. And in becoming a diplomat, she, as a woman, I guess, in her mid to late 40s, was in the company of a whole series of people who were in their early 20s. So she would go out drinking with them, and she'd socialise with them, and 
she'd, you know, hear about... I mean, they were constantly swapping amongst themselves in terms of, you know, partners and what have you. And of this, one of the women who she became very close with, up, up until, I mean, recently, when I went back to Australia, I was in the family home with this woman, and she was just saying just disgusting things to me. Uh, the, you know, that, you know, I was some perverted weirdo and all this kind of stuff, and I just, it really seemed completely out of place. Hmm. And I realised that this was actually something that had been a narrative even when I was in my mid-teens with this woman. Um, and I have very little time for it. So, well, I, in a little, no, no time. There's, there's no time. Yes. Well, like I said, that's why I became a hermit. I, I don't find that many people that really that make my life better. Mm. <laughs> you know, I think the ability to fight from an early age in circumstances of of aversion have been has been one of my, and certainly I use it with my wife in terms of our general survival quite frequently, but I know very quickly when I'm in a circumstance that is not to my best interest, and the navigating out of that circumstance is an important thing which, you know, one has to learn at some stage of one's life. Um, I seem to recall... See, to me, it's just luck. Yeah. I just look at my life and I think, <laughs> man, I am the luckiest guy in the world. <laughs> yes. I've had strings of bad luck through my life, and my view is that if it was just luck, there has to be some animal survival element to if it. If you're still here, yeah. you're, you're doing good. Yes. <laughs> I don't think it's exclusively luck, though. We may diverge there. but No, um, no, no, there's clearly luck involved. I mean, that's just, sim- well, luck, yeah. I mean, th- that's unavoidable. That's an element, you know, in our lives. You know, any moment a plane could crash into my living room. And unfortunately, well, actually, people would get the audio because I'd put it online. But aside from that, yes. <laughs> <laughs> At this point in the recording, a plane appeared to have crashed into Heron's room. <laughs> oh, God, wouldn't that be great? That would make that'd be an awesome podcast. I was watching last night, actually, uh, plane crash videos on YouTube. My wife said that she'd actually seen a number of them. There was one where... Three or four guys were in ultralight. They looked like American folks, like, with multiple cameras filming. And the ultralight went through... It wasn't an ultralight, actually. It had shag carpeting on the front dash and things like that. It looked like a 1970s plane that they just maintained. Anyway, they crashed. There's slow-motion footage of the propeller chopping through trees, and then, you know, two minutes later, they're on the ground, and the older guy had clearly done some damage to his face, and they're kind of prodding his face, and the other ones are, you know bruised but not as badly messed up as the guy on the ground um and yes there was then um footage of the denzel washington plane movie which i haven't seen yet flight or whatever it's called where he averts a a crash somehow or at least you know lands a plane in bad circumstances um but yeah it's an interesting phenomenon i've had i've known people that have died in plane crashes and it's something that I think about periodically in terms of some of the flights I've been on. I was in a flight in Germany where the rudder jammed on us. <laughs> and uh, I Luf- hate flying. <laughs> Lufthansa, Lufthansa would always say the response in German and then in English. 
and at every stage they respond in German and then in English. And then this one stage they just said it in German. And then mysteriously <laughs> the women started getting out their rosary beads and people started looking worried. And I was like, uh, why on earth? What on earth? And then mysteriously the kid next to me started eating the chocolates that he had furiously. And all this kind of crazy stuff. And I was just like, I'm not even going to ask anyone. But then you yeah, realise yeah. that the kind of manoeuvres that they were doing were indicative of actually some kind of malfunction in the tail. Wow. And I felt relative... Yeah. I mean, my view is that... Um, and actually, it's something, you know, my grandfather and I talked about while he was still alive, that actually people that fly commercial planes are really, really, really good at their job. There are a few that, you know, get through and, you know, for whatever no, reason, it's safe. breakdowns. You know. But yeah, my view is that the plane needs to be... You need to be losing wings in order, basically, to be... And even in, the, you know, in those circumstances, surprisingly, people have actually survived those kind of... Well, and if well. you get it, that's, yeah. you just have to deal with it. It's, you know, it's just not... Yeah. yeah. It's, it's the peril you play when you fly. Yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah. I, I, you know, what I don't like about it is, is losing... I mean, in a car, at least, I I'm in, have the illusion, of at least, of being in control. In an airplane, man, I'm just sitting there, and there's not a damn thing I can do. If there's something you can do, it's like, I mean, I've been in emergencies in a car, and it's not really that bad because you're so occupied with dealing with the situation, there's no time really for fear or pain or any of that shit. Mm. You know, it's just like, you got to deal with this shit. Uh, but if you're just sitting there <laughs> as a passenger, that you know would seem to be uh, well. I don't know. It's not something I'd look. I'd be looking forward to. The thing about flying to Australia, in fact, they even changed the flight routes in the past decade. Thankfully, is that you always hit the equatorial jet stream, which would give you basically between an hour to an hour and a half of just turbulence either white drop or just pure yeah. turbulence. And they'd always be playing <laughs> Friends, mysteriously. You'd always have some American sitcom as you were being thrown around. When I flew up to Malaysia one time, they had remember the animal, the talking pig movie, Babe? We were flying uh, yeah, Malaysian yeah. Airlines. They had Babe on, and there was a tropical cyclone outside the window, which was literally like an octopus kind of tentacle like octopus in the sky yeah and we were just being shaken around by that thing it was in daylight so we could actually see it i mean it was beautiful to watch you yeah had to yeah. really take that you had to take the sublime into the experience otherwise you would have you know lost well there isn't anything you can do exactly. again either. This is yeah. just so actually in that case that would be good yeah get your camera out if well, you do survive this is going to be awesome on youtube i think the thing about it that struck me was just that I had to enjoy the sublime nature of it because it was presented to me. Now, if I'd done it in the dark, it would have been considerably different. Yeah, yeah. I actually probably could have seen it in the dark because there was lightning and stuff yeah. as well. Oh, yeah, that might have been good. But, um, yeah, I think the the funny thing is I've flown so much and I've flown for such extended periods of time. I actually really, a lot of it I like. A lot of it is really, it just strikes me that I'm whenever I fly, particularly for long periods, I really feel very lucky because ultimately my grandparents flew quite a bit. But prior to that, I would have had to have gone on a boat. My father came to Australia on a boat with his yeah, parents. like weeks. You know, yeah. and yeah. the experience that you have flying makes you realize that you, you know, 
in almost all circumstances, you're damn lucky to be alive and having those experiences. Um, and I think that's one of the things that uh, I still, I meet in my bad flying experiences with those kind of experiences. Yeah. yeah. So I still have a wide variety of topics here, Heron. Well, I still have a half a glass of wine here. <laughs> so, and then a lot more in the refrigerator. <laughs> uh, sunset blush. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Really, sunset we ought to blush. hit them up for some money, shouldn't Damn we? Skippy. Yeah. <laughs> so, in, in, the, in one of the rare sleeping experiences I had through the week, the rare, rare dreaming experiences, which occurred last night, actually. I dreamt that I was arrested by the FBI as part of an ongoing terrorist investigation. And I woke up from this dream thinking, this is how this ends. Like, this basically is part of a kind of continuum of your life associated with... I've been reading about the um, the hearings associated with Brennan and the notion of what it takes to be a terrorist who is worthy of being hit by a drone strike. There is a movement from a propagandist, which is the role that I would always, we would both always be, we would always be propagandists, to actually instigating violence. And that is the transition point which, according to the government at least, justifies the use of drones against American citizens, or at least American citizens overseas. And as this thing kind of continues... I mean, the thing that strikes me is from from the if didn't they get excommunicated first, so they weren't technically no, citizens? No. Oh no, they didn't they? do any of that. Oh, oh really? No, thought, they didn't. Th- yeah, okay. No, the funny that, thing that is that was stupid. They should have excommunicated them first. Well, the the <laughs> the guy. Um, oh, what's the fellow's name? Anyway, the guy who was hit by the roadside, the first guy. Although they got his, they got his webmaster as well. Um, but the guy who was hit first um, had basically said that he was getting rid of his citizenship but had not done it formally. His son, however, was still an American citizen. His son was his son went to find his father's body. That was how his son was hit by the drone strike. Now they say, oh, you know, they, it was an accident and he, <laughs> they were aiming for different terrorists when they killed his son. But his son actually lived away from his father. His son was not with his father through any of these periods. He was in the in the in the capital of, of Yemen and it was only when he went out to find his father's body and he was you know uh, at a roadside stop basically that he was hit by the drone and it strikes me as what happened in the kind of Nixon era associated with um you know what constituted assassinations and what constituted you know the government plotting all the things that were illegal in the Nixon era are now completely legal. Nixon couldn't be impeached in 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 the modern time. He couldn't from you know the, the descriptions of um, and here again my mind goes completely blank. But the CIA director at the time who was thoroughly quizzed the stuff that he had. Um, concerns about associated with extrajudicial assassination and even, um, you know, getting these kind of prison complexes in foreign countries to do, you know, targeted um, detention and ultimately killing and these kind of things was exactly what he described explicitly as being illegal when he was put in front of the senatorial subcommittees and that he had, you know, serious problems with it. He ended up disappearing but probably committing suicide himself now we're dealing with this concept in pure legality and i think it's interesting 
the use have you been you may not have been following this but the Colorado um theater shooter has been has had pleas put in by the judge that is prosecuting against him the whole notion of what a judicial process is in the civil well in the criminal sense here is also being eroded at the same period of time that all this kind of external stuff is happening. The judge has allowed the use of truth serum on him in a criminal court. So it strikes me that things are getting pretty strange currently, and it will mm-hmm. only get more strange going into the future. I think you're, yeah, the, the middle is eroding and people are getting going one way or the other. You're either for the future or you're for the past. Yes. Yes. Because right now, it sucks. So, and, it, and it's getting worse. <laughs> it strikes me that the, the current and the previous Pope have very checkered pasts, particularly associated with their affiliation with... Oh, I don't want to talk about the Pope. No, but let's move on from this. Okay. Do, you think, do you think that it will be possible for the foreseeable future that there will be someone who by their affiliation with the past is not a questionable individual. Do you think that religion is basically moving into a spiral of increasing questionability in this circumstance? Uh, I think you got to judge each person individually. But in order to be affiliated yeah. with the groups that they need to be affiliated with to enter the papal see, they're increasingly getting more and more marginal in terms of their... You know, it's very interesting because you think... In terms of a uh, kind of you know political perspective, where are these things coming from? I'm going to drop this subject, Karen, because I do appreciate exactly what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on from that topic, it, it it it's an interesting process to observe. Imagining an institution that's been around as long as that one claims to have been around. Well, yes. I mean, yes. is there any other organization in the world that I mean? Does it go back? I guess you can make the case anyway that, that it goes all the way back to Peter. Well, I mean, you know. If there was a guy named Peter. <laughs> you know, the Jews, funnily enough, claimed something slightly earlier and some Egyptians claimed something slightly earlier. In fact, there are groups. I mean, you talk to folks who still speak Sanskrit and that's pre, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there are certainly a number of groups internationally that, um, you know, claim earlier rights. But the interesting thing is actually how far they've been perturbed from those original elements. I mean, that's the really curious thing with all these organisations is that they become a thing completely in and of themselves. And, yes, it's completely, you know, currently... Well, that's got to end. Yes. (laughs) You know, that time's over. Yes. (laughs) That ain't going to hack it anymore. Yes. So the FBI. So that's going to be a problem then. So you, that's the question. So now what? Yes. <laughs> In my dream, the FBI agents that arrested me were very polite. They agreed that mm-hmm. I didn't need to wear handcuffs as I left. I know a wide variety of things, but I did have the realization that this was the end of my communicating time. Yeah. Yeah. You're now beginning phase two of Tom's life. Yes. <laughs> and it made me realize that actually. An idea is a very, very dangerous thing. In uh, it's always been a dangerous thing. Uh, no, it, yeah, but the person's got to be ready for it. Yes, but but if they're you know you can be real ready or you can be sort of marginally ready, but yeah, yeah, 
<laughs> it's a life ch- an idea is a life changing thing. I heard through the week um, audio from Bradley Manning, and it was audio from his trial that was snuck out by some journalist who was at it, even though it was a closed trial. And I think Bradley Manning is actually one of the more interesting characters in recent history. The terrible thing is that Assange has kind of grabbed hold of it. But if you hear Manning's account of firstly being gay in the military, but also then finally coming through a Estonian-like realisation that actually he had control over so many elements of evil that if he disassociated himself with what he was supposed to be doing in the situation actually assessed it as an independent human. He only had one action of recourse, which was to make this information public. Yeah. Very powerful. It went. Yeah. It. Yeah. No, you're right. It's, it's, it's just saying, yeah, <laughs> deal with it. <laughs> yeah. The thing that struck me listening to Manning's testimony was that every, and the funny thing is the New York times reported incorrectly. The New York times here is very, very checkered because they should be in exactly the same position together with the US military that also went through the stuff that um, Manning put out and redacted various sections with Assange. I mean, all these kind of collaborators who basically were part of the information flow have a really serious um, need to actually censor what Manning has to say. And the New York Times inaccurately reported basically every aspect of the trial, which is what fascinating when the audio came out because he did actually give a very coherent blueprint to the events and and actions that made him release the media. And the striking thing is only a small fraction of what he passed WikiLeaks has actually been released. Yeah. There's a substantial portion that Assange through his current blusterings will not actually get out. It's almost infuriating that this information hasn't truly been made public. It's yeah. instead gone through this iteration. You know, what can I say? It's them language monkeys. So I was listening to some <laughs> audio where you said that if you had the ability to rap for five minutes straight on their language monkeys, you would actually resolve into some degree of coherent insight. So at this say point, that again. Wait a minute. Say that so again. There was there was one particular <laughs> recording that we did where you, I think, had a heavy cold, and I was in our library with a bad internet connection. So I was losing almost a third of what you were saying, and you weren't hearing a third of what I was saying, and we were getting increasingly angry. And we persisted. Angry. We persisted, <laughs> but we got more and more angry with this fractured kind of audio to the point where. Um, you actually got quite angry because I referred to you saying the language monkey stuff as a heronism, and you <laughs> at this point started to berate me that you actually had a point. I just had to let you get to the point. And another interesting, um, another interesting uh, theme through that was that you let me tell my stories, so I should let you work through the heronism, the the language monkey rap, yeah. to get to a point of resolution. Yeah, it was poetry, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> so, in terms of your year project, this current year, this current I, year, yes, the rebuilding the body, the posting photos of Heron through the ages, the, <laughs> <laughs> the, posting a picture of me, yes, multiple pictures, not just one. Yeah. Well, once I poked a barrier, I mean, then 
There's yeah. no going back. You yeah. know, it's the old same old story. Yeah. <laughs> so is is the is the trying to find DMT in this part of that as well? Um, yeah, that that certainly, yeah, it's it's not in disharmony with uh, any of that. You know, this is a year of change and transition, and hopefully growth and uh, reemergence. I may have to change. If it goes really well, I may have to change my name again. But I'm not. I'm not guessing whether it'll be that good or not. <laughs> so if you change your name again, oh, that's big shit. That's big stuff. If I change my name, that means uh, means there's somebody else here now. Yeah, I certainly think there's someone else here I hired. I don't. It's funny actually. Through all the nonsense that I've experienced in my life, I actually like the ability quite aggressively to say. Bravo Alpha Romeo, Bravo Alpha Lima Echo Tango, which ultimately any kind of interaction that I have with people in the outside world, it always resolves to Bravo Alpha Romeo, Bravo Alpha Lima Echo Tango, because they, um, yeah, they just never get it quite right. But your your idea of name change is something different. Why do we why do we go through what it would cause? Oh, I have no idea. Uh, Changing my name the first time took uh, – well, it was, it was actually going on – when I look back at my journals, I can see I was toying with it before I really knew I was toying with it. You know, Well, when I guess I was just toying with it. Um, so I think it actually took me several years, maybe five years, to the point where I felt that I just was not the same person anymore. It was time – to uh, take on a new identity. When did you actually change your name? What age? Uh, it was 1995, so... <laughs> wow, that was a big year for me too. Gosh. Mm. Gosh, so you're okay. You're, you're only... You're still a teenager. Yeah, right. Yeah, like I'm 17. You know? Yeah. Something like that. I don't know. what. Yeah, anyway, yeah. I'm just a fucking punk kid. Damn Skippy. It's awesome. <laughs> yes. Can't see myself changing my name. It's not. Yeah, it couldn't be part of my DNA. But I've always been. I've always felt unique through my name as well. Well, that's why I used a phonetic anagram. Yeah. So yeah, it's still got. It's got all the sounds. <laughs> yeah, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing a name. Yeah, I found out. Yeah, changing it was quite an interesting experience, really, you know? I can't remember what your previous name was. I'm trying to think. How do you do that? How do you try to think? Because my mind is something, it's a a slow-acting, currently a slow-acting database. And I can see letters associated with your former name. (laughs) <laughs> and it will come to me by well, the end Well, you know of it's a phonetic anagram. It's, it's meaningless to me because I don't, I don't think in terms of phonetic anagrams. I or think in sounds. terms of letters that emerge yeah. from the oh, smoke, okay. you know, and then yeah, they okay. sit All in right. front of me. So. Right. And I remember that it. Um, I would have changed my name too. That was the reflection I had. Yeah, Heron Stone, I think, is pretty good for you. You'd need to... Find a good name to replace. Yeah, well, the next term. one's uh, probably Nerdo Hessen. Mm. Now that's the one to go for. 
Yeah. But you've uh, liked Nerdo, Nerdo Hessen for some time. You couldn't emerge yeah. into Ner- Nerdo Hessen. Well, and also Edna Hosner is a mm. good. Mm. And and that's nice because you can read it a couple ways. It's Ed Nahosner or Ed Nahosner. <laughs> mm. So it captures, you know, all of the Well, no, well, in any case. Um that's a possibility. There's all sorts of possibilities. I hope I don't have to change my name, actually, because it really wasn't all that much fun. It, was, it just sort of like felt like it had to be done, and it was going to be awkward, and I'll just get through it, and, and then it'll just be normal, and that's just what happened. Mm. <laughs> yes, yes. I do think yeah, an appearance is something like a name. And I have had periods sure. where, where mm. I've changed my appearance. Absolutely. Hmm. It changes how, you know, well, it's part of how the world evaluates you. The way you speak, the way you write, the way you look, <laughs> the sound of your name. Hmm. It's all part of, remember, they're all language monkeys. No matter how cute they are or how clever they are, most of them actually believe everything they hear their language machines say. Almost all of them. It's rare to find somebody who doesn't, and those are the ones you want to work with. <laughs> so I was thinking through the week about this book project that I seem to be advocating for you, and <laughs> whether I, we could actually collaborate on it with the view that I can, I see it more in the form of a pamphlet initially, be it maybe 32 pages. That's an interesting idea. I hadn't even considered that, but that's a very interesting With idea. the view that it's, Cheap, easily yeah, passed on, yeah. and easily digested. I was thinking about this particularly because um, of the thousand listeners, were roughly thousand unique IPs downloading this, what have you, a good portion, I suspect, come from Model Rail Radio. There is an underlying, um, I wouldn't even say leftist, because leftist is completely wrong. There is an underlying element in Model Rail Radio that I think could easily move to Stone Ape. But I have, as I indicated to you through the week, had a little bit of listener backlash. Yeah, what was, I didn't. I totally didn't understand so I what he was saying. The, the perspective I have on model rail radio is distinctly different, I guess, the perspective that I have on Stone Ape. And I think people find it quite jarring that in the company of one group of people, I can be oh. focused oh, on I model see. rail riding to the point yeah. where people think I am... As crazy as they are. (laughs) Knowledgeable model railroader, which I don't feel in any way, shape, or form. And then they can come to this discussion. And I think part of it is a problem. If people start listening here or last week or what have you, then they miss the past however many, you know, tens of our discussions. But also they miss your body of work. This is like 33, I think. Yeah, it's more than that. But it's it's the body it's the body of work that represents. And the funny thing is, if you were to ask me the five stupidities, <laughs> I probably because I don't as you don't really care about Noble Ape fundamentally. I mean, you don't care about it in order to have downloaded it, interacted with it, read the documentation. No, I don't get stuff. it. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't add anything to my life. I understand the stupidities yeah, yeah. associated with, particularly when you say them. Yeah. <laughs> 
But I know it's, it's not, it's something that runs in parallel to our interaction, and I think uh-huh. it's completely independent, as no glypus. Yeah, well, I'm it. taking my time. Yeah, 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 you're right. So, what I was thinking about was creating a series, like a sketchbook, basically, where perhaps, as I'm describing with this comic book process, I put in some headlines, you fill in some gaps, I fill in some gaps, and then through this process in about (laughs) a six-month period of time, we have a booklet, perhaps specifically tailored. I was actually looking... You mean a conversation? Really? No, no. Now, this is something that's actually quite formal that would be given to people, particularly people that may be returning service people or people that were suffering PTSD. Oh, oh, ah, I got you. Okay. So, within this... The first thing that I wanted to do, which I can do independently, but I can also send you the source material, is that there is a lot of um, the training manuals associated with various branches of military in this country. So, um, for example, you can get, I think, almost all, if not all, the Marine Corps training documentation. You can get all the branches of military in this country. Mm-hmm. And my view you is... find th- what they have, yeah. Exactly. My yeah. view is through that, you can then get a linguistic tapestry, which you can then start, you know, deconstructing quite fundamentally. Oh, yeah. So, that's a big job, though. That's a, that's a huge job. So it is in one regard, but what my view has always been, and you do this to a certain extent through your conversations as well, is that you need to find where the seed of disbelief... These these ideas have seams to them, and you need to find where the seam is is best tuned to kind of split apart. You're not stabbing the seam. You're just saying, this is actually a weak thread here, this is a weak thread here. That's if one way. That's a this, good analogy, yeah. yeah. We, yeah we just, we then we'll untie all the little knots we run across. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, yeah, and I think from this... Ah, I like that analogy. Just take them one at, one at a time. Exactly. So it's <laughs> yeah. not going to be the five stupidities at all. What it's going to be is something that's specifically tailored to a particular kind of linguistic programming that, you know, the U.S. military primarily uses, and the fact that this is not a good way, which we you can use elements of the stupidities, but you can kind of construct it in a very calm fashion, to yeah. use in kind of later or even current life analysis that there are things that basically worked for, you know, being on the battlefield, which don't work in contemporary day-to-day life. Neither, well, I don't know about you, but I just have absolutely no knowledge of whatever those letter PTSD, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I have no idea. I have no knowledge of what's actually going on in those kinds of cases. And maybe you do, but I don't. So... My understanding of it, and this again comes through talking with people who are researchers in the area, um, mm-hmm. and also occasionally observing, um, you know... I, Do you I know any people, or have you ever met anybody who had it? So, yes, I've met oh. um, particularly people younger than me who have had it, who have been returning service people. Mm-hmm. And I think there have are... You just, I mean, have you spent any time with him? You talked to yeah, him? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, a few meals at Denny's. I mean, this I mean it, did you ever talk about yes, the disorder? Yes, definitely. Of course. Of course. And, okay. Uh, oh, that was fascinating. You know, I'd love you, to talk to somebody with exactly. that. No, I think you, the, the trick is actually exposing you to a lot of these people as well. I think part of this may be... Um, I mean, the easiest way to do it is to volunteer. <laughs> Why don't we just start a podcast for that? We could. 
Uh, no, that's a, that's that's the easiest way to volunteer. Yeah, I mean, it's just well, it's, yeah, it's just you and I can talk about that. Mm. Now, I have a friend. Do you know anybody who knows anything about it? I have. Yes, I have a friend in the North Bay who um, is a psychologist, and he could certainly put us in contact with people. He was very big associated with the um, the psychology, whatever the the body of psychologists that worked against. Um, Abu Ghraib and Guantanamo, and in particular the how psychology shouldn't be perturbed for military uses. He has a lot of people in that section, but he could certainly also put us in contact with people who were considerably more hands-on in terms of working yeah. with veterans. And I think that could It'd be interesting some- to actually have some sort of talk radio kind of thing just for... I mean, and really screen people and somehow contact people who have it yeah. for them to talk. Yeah. And, you know, and to actually, that would be fascinating, you know. So I think this is, my view is that there are, there are small components of this project that I can do. And there are probably substantially more components of this project that you can do. Well, what what is this project? This is to produce a, a sixty-page thing, uh, maybe between thirty-two and sixty pages, a, p- a pamphlet, basically. A pamphlet. How big? I mean, is this a magazine? Is this no, a it's probably comic? no. It could be a it's comic, just a, um, but I mean, it's all you know, standard pamphlet size, okay. which okay, is what six inches by, you know, maybe but maybe seven or eight inches by six inches. So we're talking about the same like size as a yeah. comic, more or yeah, less, basically. right? Okay, all right. So it's pamphlet, yes, yeah. whatever that size that is. And of language that is easily digestible, but basically conveys strong ideas. Okay, and the point of this and its relation to PTSD is... Is understanding what? the role that language and recognizing various points of language programming that may be you know, part of the PTSD or um, yeah. inhab- inhibiting. Or this, this, it, it is a part of it and yeah. dealing with that part of it. Yeah. Yes. That's an interesting idea. So I will um, talk to my friend in the North Bay and uh, see if he can provide some references associated with this, with the view that he will probably put you in contact with some quite interesting people, which would be very interesting people who probably because they've already talked to him they've already spoken to him in a podcast format would be interested in talking to you in a podcast format yeah well it, you know it would just be interesting to see what pops out you mm. know. so anyway that that is my job for the week uh and i think we have covered most of my topics do you have anything else you would like to uh, leave us with can't think of a thing. Heron, it's been a pleasure as always. I look forward to talking to you in a week's time. Take care. See you.